The following broadcast is brought to you by Public House Media. The latest headlines. If they go out and wipe the floor with the Texans, I might buy in. The insightful interviews. Whitney McIntosh, SB Nation. I was more impressed with John Carlos, especially when you consider Aaron Judge's all-star squad. The hottest takes. Yeah, Saquon Barkley had a great game against Iowa, but he hasn't done much. Can all be found on Press, Press Row. Row. Here's your host. It's clearly time for a change. It's only a matter of time before it happens. Christian Heimel. What is up? You're on Press Row. I'm Christian. I'm happy to have you guys here with us broadcasting as part of the Public House Media Network. Don't forget you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Spreaker.com, Stitcher.com. You can also check us out on Facebook, Public House Media, as well as Press Row Podcast-Public House Media, Instagram and Twitter, at Press Row PHM. Email the show, Press Row PHM, at gmail.com. You can find me there as well, at Chris Heimel. We are in the midst of the fall classic tied up 1-1 between the Dodgers and the Astros in the World Series. Matt Yaloff of MLB Network is going to join us here in just a couple minutes to break down the first two games of the College World Series, but also just how crazy Game 2 was, what we can expect the rest of these series. And more importantly, once the baseball is all done, there's some managerial changes that have been, already been made. Uh, some guys that have lost their jobs, jobs that have already been filled, and what Matt thinks uh, of all those changes that have happened here. And then, of course, college football, as we talk about almost every week, big matchups uh, in college football here. Maybe none bigger than what is going on with 14th-ranked North Carolina State and number 9 Notre Dame this weekend. We'll speak with Ben Kirchival, CBSSports.com college football writer, about that game, as well as just how big is that gap between Alabama and the rest of the country. And, of course, the Big Ten matchup between Ohio State, six-ranked Buckeyes, hosting number two Penn State and Saquon Barkley, the Heisman frontrunner for many people. Not for me, as I've said many times, I haven't bought into the hype yet of Saquon Barkley. We'll also answer your questions that you guys tweet us, put us up on Facebook as well. All of that coming up here today on Press Row. But we want to start in the world of Major League Baseball. It is the World Series, the Fall Classic, one of the best times of the year. And we have been absolutely treated, and I mean treated, gifted, Two incredible games in the World Series. Game one, a, a absolute quintessential pitcher's duel between Clayton Kershaw and Dallas Keuchel, of which the Dodgers win 3-1. Uh, all four runs scored via the home run. And, and, and that's another part about this, and we'll touch on this in a little bit, but uh, of the 17 runs that have been scored in this World Series, 13 of them have come on the long ball. And then game two, uh, just an insanity ensuing in Game 2 across the board uh, with the Astros who take the early lead. They give it up. The Dodgers take the lead. The Astros come back and tie it. They take the lead in the 10th inning. The Dodgers tie it. The Astros retake the lead uh, in the 11th. The Dodgers get so close to, to tying it, maybe even winning it. You look in, in extra innings, five home runs hit in extras in that game between the Astros and the Dodgers. In game two, just an insanely talented and insanely exciting game two, uh, but but also a crazy game when you look at the ups and downs, uh, even just fluke plays. The ball that hits off Chris Taylor's cap in center field and bounces right to the left fielder to be able to prevent runs from scoring for the Astros. The pickoff attempt uh, that hits Laz Diaz, the second base umpire, that prevents a run from potentially scoring for the Dodgers. It, it, absolute insanity. The game had everything. It was so exciting, so entertaining, and, and, and just crazy to think about just how talented and where we are with this World Series. And I really hope that you guys get a chance to sit back and really appreciate what we're watching. You're seeing two 100-win teams go against each other for the first time in 47 years, 200 win teams. You're looking at two teams with such incredibly young talent. The Astros, Carlos Correa, Jose Altuve, Alex Bregman, uh, George Springer, Yuli Gurriel, the first baseman who doesn't really get talked about much. 
the the Dodgers, Cody Bellinger, uh, Corey Culberson, Corey Seager, um, Yasiel Puig, uh, Josh Turner even isn't that young. Uh, but I mean, he's he's not that old either. He's still in his late twenties. Still a very talented player uh, for this team. And then you look at the pitching staffs on both sides, whether it's Dallas Keuchel or Justin Verlander uh, or, or Clayton Kershaw or Rich Hill or Kenton Maeda or even tonight's matchup in Game 3, Hugh Darvish and Lance McCullers. Uh, there are just some supremely talented individuals up and down the board. Even in the bullpen, uh, Josh Fields or Kenley Jansen, the best closer in baseball for the Los Angeles Dodgers, uh, Chris Davinsky or... Ken Giles for for the Houston Astros. There's just so much talent up and down uh, the roster for both of these teams, and you're really getting treated to it because you're getting to see not only great talent, but great managers. Dave Roberts, who is so smart and has been highly revered, not only uh, from his smarts as a player, but now as a manager, Uh, and then A.J. Hinch, who, with what he's done with this Astros team here over the last couple of seasons, already has his name in the lines for for potentially bigger jobs in Major League Baseball, which is hard to think that uh, a team that has won 100 wins, an AL pennant, potentially a World Series, still yet to be determined, that A.J. Hinch could be moving on from this. But just, I really hope for, for folks who aren't pure baseball fans or have gone away from being pure baseball fans because, oh, the games are too long or they don't like the bat flips or whatever it is, I really hope you can appreciate just how exciting these two games have been so far and how exciting the World Series could be for the next five, four, however long these games go because we are really in for such a treat as as the series now shifts to Houston. And, and I just want to say, uh, you know, uh, this has been so much fun to watch. The postseason in general, uh, the Astros, uh, I saw a crazy number. The Astros are... Uh, lead the league in, in ninth inning game tying or go ahead home runs or, or just ninth inning home runs in general, 75, including the postseason. It, this has been a lot of fun to watch. I personally have picked the Dodgers to win this game in six. And the only reason I think that is because with Kershaw going game one against Keuchel and not Justin Verlander, it limits how much the Astros can use Verlander, the ALCS MVP. And I think that's a huge mistake. I if it had been Kershaw Verlander in one in game one, I might have been inclined to pick the Astros. But uh, neither of these teams have lost at home yet in this postseason. The Dodgers having that home field advantage, I think, is a huge key for them. The Dodgers having Verlander, or excuse me, the Dodgers having Kershaw available for games one, potentially four and seven, if it came to that. Uh, the 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 Astros, I don't think they're going to have Verlander available for game seven. You may pitch him. In Game Five, but two days rest for Game Seven would be tough uh, if you really needed him. And um, you know, as as much as I love Verlander, he's not Madison Bumgarner. He's not that young. He's been great, nine and zero in ten starts since being acquired by the Astros, including the postseason. But um, it, it's it's been something else. So uh, really excited, incredible first two games in the, in the World Series. Uh, 1-1 as we head to Houston now, Game 3 tonight. Lance McCullers for the Astros and Hugh Darvish for the Los Angeles Dodgers. Matt Yolliff is host with Major League Baseball Network. He joins us now here on the phone. And uh, Matt, have you had a chance to kind of digest or recoup from from what we've seen these first two games of the World Series? (laughs) Well, you know, I don't even remember Game 1 because Game 2 took up so much of my brain uh, that I don't even remember what happened in game one. He, here's the thing. Uh, MLB Network replays the highlights, extended uh, form highlights of the game with all the key innings. I had to go back last night, the day after, and re-watch it because I couldn't absorb what was happening when it was happening. I I was afraid to even, you know, go get a snack in the kitchen because I was going to miss a home run. I I just, uh, it's up there for me. I've been watching baseball for uh, 42 years, I think, obviously, since I'm very little. I'm going to put that game up there with 1975 World Series Game 6. 1986 World Series Game 6, 
1991 Game 7, 2011 Game 6, and 2016 Game 7. That's how outrageous it was. You know, it's funny, Matt. I, I went back after watching Game 2 and, and immediately thought of that that Rangers-Cardinals series. Uh, you're absolutely right. Before we go any further here and talk about the World Series, there have been some managerial changes already in Major League Baseball. First offseason in which three postseason teams will have new managers. Um, there have also been three positions already filled. Ron Gardenhire uh, with the Tigers, Alex Cora with the Red Sox, and then Mickey Calloway with the Mets. Uh, of those three managers uh, who have been hired which one do you think maybe makes the most sense for the team that hired them? Wow. You know, it's one of these things where it, it, you look at, and I was right before we talked, I was doing a little research. Um, let me just say this. Different teams need different people at different times. So the Alex Cora move versus the Ron Garden hire move, could you find – a more different approach to your hire. You're talking about a young man who can communicate with the Hispanic players very well. He is enthusiastic. He studies. He has great personality. That I'm talking about Cora here, but it's his first managerial job. Then you got Garden Hire, who I love, and I love covering him. And he was ultra successful, but he's older, he's old school, he's going to be dealing with a team in a major rebuild. Uh, it's very tough to know. I do really like the Alex Cora move. Um, I like the youth, given the makeup of their team. I like the fact he recently played which is also these days seems to be a very big help. And it's in, look, look, it's an analytical thing now. I call it the new math. Um, and it is, you have to have not only a manager who says, yeah, 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 we'll use that, but embraces that. Now, we don't know if Garden Hire will or he won't. So, out of those two, I like Cora because it's a win-now team. Mickey Calloway, a word on Calloway. I don't know the man. I've never met the man. I've never heard a bad word about him. But think about this. The Mets have been around since 1962. This is only the third former pitcher who they will have as a manager. Dallas Green was one, and George Bamberger, during the ugly days of the Mets, was another. Pitchers as managers are very difficult to figure out because they have spent their career dealing with a small portion of the team. That said, I love his personality. I think... New York will love him until they don't, because that's how it works in New York. But his pitching coach, whoever that may be, has a very important job because he has to be able to take the responsibility away from a guy who is technically, historically, a pitching coach. Very tough mix. He's Matt Yall of Major League Baseball Network joining us here on Press Row. Real quick on Alex Cora because I grew up a Boston Red Sox fan and it feels as though Sox fans have had their eye on Cora ever since he put on a Red Sox uniform. But this year it felt like he elevated to a different stratosphere in terms of managerial candidate. What makes him the right fit for this team at this moment? Because it's his first managerial job, like you mentioned, and it's not exactly a small market team. It's the Boston Red Sox. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> Managing in Boston, you know, it's you know how like when a guy is elected president, and then you see video of him from when he was first elected compared to when he's leaving office, and he's gray and he looks a lot older than he should. That's how I imagine it would be to manage in Boston. Um, okay, a couple of things. Um, a great reputation in getting along with players. The communication part 
is huge. Um, the fa- the way Farrell operated, and let's remember, they won back-to-back uh, division titles in Boston for the first time ever under John Farrell, and he's gone. So there was something there. There was a disconnect of some kind that was not good enough. Um, I don't think they're going to have that problem with Cora. He was a bench coach with a team and is a bench coach with a team in the World Series. Um, he did play there. He understands the lay of the land. I mentioned he was bilingual. Uh, bilingual, excuse me. Um, and, and and analytics. And you know, look, some guys have the it factor, and you know when it, your job or my job, you know the people who have it, and then the people who were good employees, but. This guy, by all accounts, has it, and I would imagine, and I should mention this, the first Hispanic manager for the Red Sox. So it's about time, good for them, and I wish him all the luck in the world. More surprising to part ways with, Dusty Baker in Washington or or Joe Girardi in New York? Oh, my goodness. It's not even close for me. Uh the Dusty Baker parting of the ways to me signals a much larger issue internally in Washington. I'm going to read you something. Dusty Baker, two years with the Nets, won the division both times. Matt Williams, who we know did not have the easiest time with the media, we get it, won the NL East in 14 manager of the year. Davey Johnson, a world champion, won the NL East in 2012 Manager of the Year. You're talking about in a five- or six-year span, they have gone through three successful managers. That signifies something larger going on. And what I would compare it to, and I thought of this driving in today into work, it's like the guy or the girl who has a wonderful girlfriend or boyfriend, but they always think they can do better, and they're not satisfied. I'm not sure what the heck is going on there, but this is a team that has never won a postseason series, and I'm going back to Montreal. So that, to me, very big surprise. Uh, I, I do not feel that way about uh, Girardi, by the way. Which one of them do you think is managing come opening day 2018, Baker or Girardi? Wow, that's a great one. Um, if I flip the coin, I might do better in guessing. I'm going to say Baker because I get the sense from reading and listening to Girardi. And look, I have the advantage of living in New York, so I see a lot more of him than I would of someone else. I get the feeling that he may be emotionally spent and may need a break. That, that's, that's my guess, so I'll go Baker. Who do you see or, or who have you maybe heard of that could be taking over both of those franchises uh, in Washington or in New York? Um, I don't know a whole – I'm not going to lie to you. I don't know a whole lot about that. I've, I've read the names that everybody has read, um, uh, and many of them are not big names. They're not, they're not the kind of names where you say, well, wow, he's going to be great in New York. Uh, I, I read the name Al Pedrique, who is a former major leaguer, did not have a distinguished career, uh, but is a very good baseball man. I've heard the name uh, this for the Yankees. I've heard the possibility of the hitting coach uh, who is with the Mets, then with the, the Yankees. Um, uh, Kevin Long. I, I, uh, Kevin Long, right, I'm sorry. Um, I've, I've heard Kevin Long's name pop up. Um, but, but here's what you're up against, and, and I don't know, I don't have any inside info on that. I'm not going to lie to you. But here is what you're up against. In the last 25 years, the Yankees have had three managers. 25 years. They had Showalter, 
They had Tory. They had Girardi. That is insane. There are teams like the Nationals who have had three managers in the last, I'm doing my math here, six years? Uh, so uh, the guy who gets hired in New York, uh, there's a lot of pressure on the front office and the ownership to get the right guy because you can't start the old two years and gone, we're going to try this now. It doesn't work. They have too much young talent, and they're on the verge of becoming an every-year threat in MLB. He's Matt Yall of Major League Baseball Network. Let's get back to the World Series here. Um, and, and this series has been personified by the home run, even despite the pitcher's duel that was Game 1. 14 of the 17 runs scored so far in this World Series have come via the long ball. Uh, Dallas Keuchel said after Game 2, it, it was evidence that the ball is juiced. Um, but <laughs> yeah. I saw that. What is your take on, on the barrage of home runs that we have seen so far in the Fall Classic? Well, you know what's funny is that <laughs> I was laughing because um, after the game, I heard, I don't even remember who it was, because MLB Network interviewed basically everybody who hit a home run. They said, you know, this is a great hitter's park. And I thought, wait a minute. I grew up, I was told, and I was under the impression it was a great pitcher's park. And they had the best mound in Major League Baseball. And the ball doesn't fly, especially um, at night. You know, now it's a great hitter's park. Well, um, what do I make of it? I make that the game has changed and dramatically, and the game has changed to the point where these young players are being taught at a very young age that their swing is now a swing not for contact. It's a swing for power. And when you have two teams that have won 100 games, it's no accident they're in the World Series. So you're talking about not just the game has changed, these are the two best. So wouldn't you think that the best attributes would be the best things that you're going to see? And, and we're seeing it. And I, I, it, it's crazy. I mean, to, to see how the game has changed, I, I tweeted the other day, I said, whatever happened to a rally? And what I meant was not three home runs in four batters. That's not a rally. What I meant was a single, a walk, a double, a sacrifice, another single. It doesn't exist anymore. Uh, it's, it's insane. It is absolutely insane. World Series now shifts to Houston, tied at one game apiece. You Darvish for the Dodgers, Lance McCullers for Houston tonight uh, in Game 3. Uh, is there any way to predict, whether it's three, four, five games, whatever we see here over the next week, is there any way to predict what we could see on the field? No, no, you can't. But, but, but if there's anything that we learned in Game 2, and I feel very strongly about this, I had picked, and I have to get this in here before I look dumb, because, like, by tomorrow, I could look at it like a moron. I predicted Houston in seven. And the, one of the reasons was, and I'm getting to, to answer your question here, was that they were smoked on the road in the ALCS. They were shell-shocked. And I thought to myself, they had to have learned a lesson. They looked like they couldn't believe what was going on. I said they had to have learned a lesson. They had to have learned how to play on the road in a big game. Well, game one, they lose. And I thought, wow, gosh, what is going on? This is a good road team. So in game two, what, what did they do? They proved to themselves they can win a very tight and intense game on the road. Very, very important for them. And two, they learned that they can slay the dragon in Kenley Jansen. Those two things, mentally or emotionally, or whatever you want to call it, are tremendous. So I am going to stick with my pick, uh, although the Dodgers, Dodgers aren't losing three in a row in Houston. 
So what what I would say is it's going to go back to L.A. He's Matt Yaloff, MLB Network, joining us here on Press Run. One of the reasons I wanted to have Matt on, for those who, who don't know his story, uh, a stroke victim suffered a stroke um, uh, in his life, and many of us have been affected by it uh, at one point or another in our lifetime, and, and you've done some great work with the Stroke Association and Burke Rehabilitation Center. Just want to give you a couple of moments, Matt, to, to touch on that. Yeah, well, well, thank you, and I appreciate that. Um, it wasn't just a stroke in my lifetime. It was a stroke that, that happened only 15 months ago, July of, six, of 2016. And it was a significant stroke. Uh, there are different levels. Everybody's different. Everybody has different problems. Uh, I was in ICU for nine days, and I was an inpatient at Burke Rehabilitation in New York uh, for an entire month where I underwent uh, therapy daily all day. Um, so right away, I have to thank the work that they did with me to help me get back to where I am now, and there's still a ways to go. Uh, I was an outpatient for six months, four days a week doing therapy to relearn how to talk, how to walk, how to process information, and everything that goes with it. Burke has been around for 100 years. I am doing charity work for them. My wife and I are very involved in the yearly gala in which they raise crazy money for people who have suffered stroke and families who are dealing with it and may be dealing with it for the rest of their life. So that's one thing. Burke.org is the, is the, is the site. The Stroke Association is a national association. Burke is local, but they do have patients from all over. Um, the National Stroke Association is national. There is help. They have a website at stroke.org. There is support for the caregiver, the families, uh, the kids, the patient. 800,000 people a year in the United States have one. And every single stroke is different. It's like a snowflake. No two are alike and no two people will heal the same way. But it's one of those things, and I'm going to tell you, when I woke up on July 29th, 2016, and this is no BS, if you had asked me that morning, what is a stroke, I would not have been able to tell you because I thought, it's something that happens to old people. It is something that happens to all people. Kids, teens, young adults, adults, and the elderly. And if you know anything about it, it could wind up help saving a life or helping somebody. And uh, the journey continues. It has been life-changing, and the people who have helped me along the way, family, friends, therapists, doctors, first responders, all have a hand in why I'm alive, because it could have easily ended the other way. Matt, we're inspired by your story uh, and so thankful for the folks at, at Burke to, to get you back and, and talking baseball with us and enjoying another World Series. Thank you so much for the time. Can I just say one last thing? Thank you for having me, but I also need to thank Rob McGlary, Dave Patterson, Tim Sullivan, the people in MLB Network who lead the charge here. There are so many more names. They have treated me and my family as well as you could possibly imagine and their support will never be forgotten. Matt, thank you very much for the time. Thank you so much for having me, 
and enjoy game three. That's Matt Yalif. You can find him on Twitter at Matt Yalif MLB. Uh, great story, and, and uh, you know, uh, check out uh, Stroke.org and and, and Burke.org as well. Uh, if you've ever been um, a part of of someone who has been a victim of a stroke or, or their family, you you know just how difficult it can be. Not just the initial shock, but obviously the the rehabilitation and getting back to normal. So we we're happy to have Matt here with us, and happy to. Uh, be able to share his story and, and, and talk baseball with him once again uh, as World Series Game 3 tonight. You Darvish uh, for the Dodgers, Lance McCullers for the Houston Astros. And again, you know, I mean, we touched on it with Matt. I, I, I just think it's something that uh, I hope everybody gets a chance to, and I mentioned it earlier, I hope everybody gets a chance to just kind of sit back and enjoy and appreciate just how talented these two teams are and exactly what to uh, expect and, and that is absolutely nothing over these next three to five games, however long this World Series goes. Also, want to touch on a couple of things. We we started it off uh, discussing the managerial changes. Uh, a, a couple of ones that have already happened. I think all three have been great. Ron Garden hire uh, tremendous manager for the Twins, and now to have him with the Detroit Tigers, I think is is great. I love that move for him. Uh, Mickey Callaway, I think, is the best possible choice for the Mets, a team that wants to build themselves around uh, young, talented pitching. It's best to get a guy who built his career on that. Um, I, I mean, it would have been nice to see a guy like maybe Carl Willis get a chance, but Willis goes now to the Indians uh, to replace Callaway uh, as the pitching coach there, and, and I just think that it makes a lot of sense for him. Jim Hickey. Probably would have made sense also, but Hickey moves to the Cubs uh, to become their pitching coach um, after a couple of guys moving on from Chicago. And then Alex Cora for the Boston Red Sox, I I think is the absolute best possible choice they could have had. I thought he was a guy that the Red Sox should have hired five years ago when they hired John Farrell instead, Um, but he just makes the most possible sense and I think is the best move there for, for, for the Boston Red Sox. Very smart um, a guy who automatically has the respect of all the players, not just uh, you know the veterans, but the rookies as well, the young guys, the Latino players. Um, he, he's been a manager and waiting for years now and happy to see him get that opportunity with the Red Sox. Uh, and and you know, as we mentioned with Matt, a couple of openings now that, that just kind of you wonder about Dusty Baker and, and Joe Girardi, guys who led their teams to the playoffs, guys who may have had their best years as managers this year, and they lose their jobs. Um, I, I don't understand either one of them. I mean, I kind of do. Girardi's been around for 10 years. Baker's been around for, I think, I think three or four in Washington. And, and we've baseball's become similar to the NFL, where if you don't win right away, you're kind of out. Uh, and you don't get time to develop, which is unfortunate because baseball, as seen by the Cubs and the Astros, it takes time to develop your team. Um, it, it's it's more the college style where you got to let your system take place for a couple of years before you can really see just how big it can be. So um, I, I don't know where those guys go. I do think both of them have jobs available. I think Joe Girardi... Uh, could very easily be a bench coach. It also wouldn't surprise me if Girardi ends up staying out of baseball for a couple of years, maybe going into the media route. I think he'd be very good there. Uh, for, the, for the Nationals, who, who knows what the opportunities are there? I don't know who you have, but um, you know, for the Yankees, I don't know if Dusty Baker's the right move. I've heard A.J. Hinch. I think that makes a lot of sense, but it's hard to imagine a guy who could potentially win a World Series leaving especially after the bench coach leaves for a managerial job, Alex Cora with the Red Sox. Uh, so it's hard to imagine that A.J. Hinch would leave the Astros. But another name that, that I, I saw floated around and I kind of love because I, I know him personally and I think he would make a great manager is John Flaherty, the former catcher for the Yankees, uh, the former uh, you know backstop there, backup catcher who has a long career in Major League Baseball, very smart, knows the organization, has been with the uh, yes, network part of the broadcast crew for a couple of years now. I don't know if he would want to, but uh, from from knowing John, knowing his personality, knowing his mindset of the game, he he makes a lot of sense there. Uh, but we'll we'll see exactly what happens. It's going to take some time to find out. Um, but when it all comes together, it, it'll certainly be exciting. You can bet we'll be covering it all right here on Press Row. I'm Christian Imel. We're happy to have you guys here with us, part of the Public House Media Network. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, review. 
Apple Podcasts, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Spreaker.com, and Stitcher.com. You can also find us online. Email us, PressRowPHM at gmail.com. Instagram and Twitter is at PressRowPHM. And on Facebook, PressRowPodcast-PublicHouse media. As always, we love to get your guys' questions. We have a few of them submitted to us here this week to go ahead and try to answer. First one that we want to get to is via Twitter. Uh, Colin asks us here just how crazy uh, was was the game two and which game was better, game one or game two of the World Series? Well, we brought it up with Matt, and I think he had the right answer. Game two, just from an excitement standpoint and from what today's standards of excitement in baseball are, I think game two wins that going away. Um, you look at, at just how ridiculous, how crazy it was. Just to give you guys some idea of just how ridiculous game two was, um, Justin Verlander <laughs> retired the first nine batters in order. He had a perfect game through three innings in game two. And again, 9-0. and oh, uh, in his 10 starts, including the postseason with the Houston Astros, eight home runs in game two, most ever in a World Series game. Eight of them, which accounted for 10 of the 13 home runs in the game. Again, four, uh, 14 of the 17 runs that have been scored in this World Series have come via the long ball. Um, just absolutely insane to think about. Uh, the Dodgers were had had a 98 and 0 record when leading after eight innings this year, including the playoffs. They were 98 and 0 in 2017 when leading after eight innings, and they lost that game. Uh, bullpen had pitched 28 consecutive scoreless innings uh, for the Dodgers before Game Two, and then just so much insanity. Uh, five home runs in extra innings. Um, the most ever for any game, regular or postseason, uh, in 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 baseball history, uh, breaking uh, the prior one, which was Game One of the '95 ALDS, in which three extra inning homers were hit between the Indians and the Red Sox. So those are just some of the numbers that were just how ridiculous it was uh, to to look at. And then just one last one: Astros were the first team ever to hit home runs in the 9th, 10th, and 11th innings of a postseason game. things we, We've been playing baseball for 130 years in this country, and so many things that you had never seen before happened on uh, Game 2 on Wednesday night, and, and it was just absolutely insane to think. So as much as I loved Game 1 as a pitcher's duel standpoint, it was a lot of fun to see to watch Clayton Kershaw and Dallas Keuchel battle with each other. Game two, far and away, was the more exciting game, the crazier game. I just watched Twitter absolutely lose its mind uh, throughout the night, and I lost my mind with it as well. So, uh, really, really exciting game. Uh, Josh via email asking, with the Ravens' 40 to nothing win last night over the Dolphins, are they now the team to beat in the AFC North? Uh, no, uh, I don't think they're the team to beat in the AFC North. Um, I do think they are uh, a lot better than I expected. Uh, listen, the Dolphins were coming off two very talented wins, comeback wins over both the Jets and the Atlanta Falcons. 40 to nothing uh, for the Ravens to win. That really kind of shut a lot of people up, especially considering they played the second half with Ryan Mallett after the Kiko Alonso hit on Joe Flacco in the first half, which, uh, j- just a little side note here, uh, that call and the penalty on Kiko Alonso and the retaliation from from the Ravens is right by the letter of the rule. It is right, but Flacco slides so late; it's kind of tough for Kiko to pull himself up there. I I do think he still can, and I have the same feeling on roughing the kicker on a field goal. You know that you still have a split second to at least dive out of the way or not make direct contact or that brutal contact with him. So it, it looked a lot worse than it probably should have. It was a lot worse than it probably should have been, but. You know, I, I just I just don't like that call because Flacco slides so late. But it's beside the point because the Ravens had a tremendous game, their largest shutout in franchise history, 40 to nothing over the Dolphins. I still think the Steelers, especially when you look at the last two weeks they have played, have been just that dominant and that impressive now that 
it seems that they have everybody on tap except for Martavis Bryant, who should be traded or cut or ignored one of the two because he's not that talented in my opinion. Um, but you know, the Steelers are still a team to beat in the AFC North. The Ravens, though, they they're starting to win me over again. That defense really showed up um, against a Matt Moore and and Jay Ajayi. Uh, and, and even with Ryan Mallett, the offense still looked very good for Baltimore. So uh, I, I haven't fully thrown my support behind them yet, but they're starting to bring me around from where I was standing on them about a month ago at this point. Um, and, and one other final note, by the way, on that game last night. Indomitian Sue, who... <sighs> Ryan Mallett got into his face a little bit, and Indomitian Sue goes and puts his hand on the throat of a player that that's not that's not a football move that's not a retaliation that's a threat that that is by definition a threat when you put your hands on someone's throat and and to me that means one thing more than anything else and that proves one thing more than anything else Indomitian Sioux is the biggest embarrassment to the National Football League that we have ignore Adrian Peterson ignore uh Ezekiel Elliott's domestic abuse scandal. Uh, ignore Greg Hardy. Ignore Joe Mixon. The Colin Kaepernick. It's not even a controversy. The most embarrassing thing the NFL has right now is the fact that Indomitian Sue is still employed. This is a man who has repeatedly attempted to maim and injure with intent opposing players. And he did it again last night. And, and it's absolutely embarrassing and disgusting, and for how talented that he is, and it bothers me growing up a Nebraska Cornhuskers fan that he gets to claim that school as an alma mater, but he has just been an absolute embarrassment to the National Football League, to the Detroit Lions, to the Miami Dolphins, and to anybody who calls themselves a fan of Indomitian Sioux, and last night just further proved why, uh, so that that's that's all I'm going to mention about him. Uh, again, insanely disappointing, insanely embarrassing. But the Ravens put up uh, a hell of a game. Really impressed with them uh, over this past week. And now we'll see what happens the rest of the week. Some some really interesting games uh, coming up. I think Philadelphia has a chance now to really cement themselves as, as the best team in the NFC, especially with Atlanta's loss to, to New England. I think the Cowboys have a real big test on the road in Washington. The Redskins are going to be ready to go. Um, and, and then we'll see if the Steelers can keep it going. Uh, we'll see if the Chiefs can maybe bounce back a little bit uh, after a couple of, of tough losses in a row to both Pittsburgh and Oakland. So really exciting uh, weekend coming up in the NFL. And then uh, one other question, Brandon on Facebook uh, is asking us here um, about Notre Dame football, the Irish uh, right now at 6-1, and one, ranked ninth in the country here. Uh, if Notre Dame keeps it up, can they make it into the college football playoff? Uh, I 100% think they can. When you look at their schedule, uh, a top 25, top 15 team in North Carolina State this weekend. Uh, Wake Forest isn't that exciting, but then they've got Miami on the road. Miami, a team currently ranked 8th in the country. Navy, not that exciting, but then you get Stanford as well. Um, if Notre Dame goes 11-1, and I know Stanford just lost last night, and I'll get to that later, but... Uh, if Notre Dame goes 11-1, and one, why wouldn't they make the college football playoff? You, you look at them and what they've done, they've played, their one loss is a one-point loss to Georgia, the third-ranked team in the country, whose probably only loss is going to come to Alabama in the SEC championship game. So it, as of right now, if you just play things out, why isn't the college football playoff Alabama Penn State, who I think wins the Big Ten Championship and goes undefeated. Notre Dame at number three. And then pick who you want. If Clemson is able to fight their way back, or Miami potentially able to fight their way to an ACC championship, or maybe it's Georgia, a a second place, a one-loss SEC school, why isn't Notre Dame considered for that? So it, it wouldn't surprise me at all to see Notre Dame, and I do think they deserve to be in the in the college football playoff. Speaking of Notre Dame, speaking of college football, Ben Kirchival is the uh, college football writer for CBSSports.com. Uh, a big weekend coming up this week. Ben joins us now here on Press Row. Ben, thanks a lot for the time. Yeah, thank you. 
And uh, Ben, first things first, had a fan ask about it here this week. They're a team that has maybe kind of surprised some folks here this year, uh, sitting in the top 10 now in the AP poll. That's the number nine Notre Dame fighting Irish. And other than a one-point loss to Georgia, they've been kind of dominating people this year. What's been the biggest change that you've seen from the Irish this year? Well, they've come full circle. They've gone from being consistently overrated or, or when they do win, they kind of get the Notre Dame bounce which is a little bit bigger than what most programs would get. I think we kind of got almost like a Notre Dame fatigue out of that. And so everyone almost forgot about Notre Dame last year. They went four and eight last season for myriad reasons. It's never just one thing. Part of it is they weren't very good in the trenches. They lost some really good playmakers on both sides of the ball in their defensive front seven along their offensive line. Brian Kelly had some bad game management um, that he's, since taking some ownership of they just there was just a couple of things that really just did not go right for them um they had some injury problems over the last couple of years so when you compile all those things together they just were on a real bad downturn there but they've really rectified a lot of those problems um coming into this season they have a really good offensive line mike mcclinch is the guy who really anchors that line but they've done a very good job run blocking your one of the best offensive lines statistically in college football in, in that department. And that's why their run offense is so successful with Brandon Wimbush and Josh Adams. Both of those guys are tremendous athletes, but they're also given great opportunities to get to the second level of the defense and, and really use that athleticism to their advantage. And then on the defensive side of the ball, they're, they're also much better than the trenches. So they've just really beefed up on, on that part of their game and um, and it's really showed they have an identity this year. I think that's something that they haven't had in the past couple of years. Deshaun Kaiser was a great quarterback, but Brian Kelly totally mismanaged that quarterback situation over the last year or so. So now that they kind of know who they are and know what they want to do offensively, they've been able to go out and execute. And, you know, that Georgia game was really tough for them. And they had less than two yards per rush, and Georgia's defense did a very, very good job of taking that away from them. And they're getting ready to go and play North Carolina State, who probably, other than Georgia, has the best D-line that they are going to face this entire season. So this is, I would say, the next biggest challenge for them as far as getting through this last half of the schedule, which is pretty difficult. They don't really have a guaranteed win anywhere in that slate. Um, but no matter, I think, unless barring a total collapse, I think this marks a huge turnaround for Brian Kelly, who look, people can say what they want about him. He, he's been known to be a jerk in press conferences. He's, he's not always the most likable guy. He, I, I don't know that I would ever want to play for him, but the guy can coach, and, and I think he has, a, he has a proven track record of that, and this looks like a really great turnaround. Uh, if they get through this schedule with 11 wins, I, I don't know that there's another team in college football that can claim to have done as much in the last two months of the season as them. You mentioned Mike McGlinchey along with uh, Quentin Nelson, two uh, guys that a lot of people think will be the top two offensive linemen taking them the draft next year. Uh, has this been a career renaissance for Brian Kelly, or is this more him understanding the tools he has to work with and finally putting them in a spot to succeed? Yeah, you always have to do that as a coach. You have to sort of adapt to, to what you have. He's always been a guy who, at Notre Dame, if he can get those mobile quarterbacks, if he can run the ball um, with a running back and a quarterback in the backfield, he, he's always really liked to do that. Um, and I think with this with this group and with Brandon Wimbush, he hasn't forced the issue as much passing the ball. You know, he Brian Kelly historically is a very tough coach on his quarterback. I mean, you, you see a couple of years ago just screaming at Everett Golson on the sideline and, and trying to get him to do things that maybe he wasn't capable of doing or at least doing with a certain level of consistency. Golson actually wasn't a bad passer. He just couldn't help himself from turning the ball over. And so I think with, with Brandon Wimbush, you're seeing a Brian Kelly who, who's more of, okay, let's modify and let's work around what he does really well. And I know there was all those stories written in the offseason about how Brian Kelly's changed. I don't know that I buy that as much as I buy him just looking at what he has as a team and saying, okay, we're going to focus on the things that they do really well, form that identity, 
and then go off and, and play and see what happens. And and it does take a certain level of an ego check to make that adjustment. But I don't think that Brian Kelly is reinventing the wheel. I don't think he's completely rewriting the script on anything. I think he's just making some modifications that have really worked out for them. He's Ben Kerchival, CBSSports.com college football writer, joining us here on Press Row. You kind of alluded to it earlier, but NC State this weekend at 14th in the country, Stanford uh, on the road, Miami on the road, coming up both teams ranked in the top 25. If this team finishes 11-1, and is there any argument for Notre Dame not to be in the college football playoff? It just depends on the landscape. It depends on who else is there. Um, they'll certainly have the resume. I'll, I'll be interested to see what they look like with a 12-game schedule as opposed to a 13-game one with a conference championship that a Big Ten champion or an SEC champion might be able to enjoy. So I I think that certainly plays a role into it. I think where Georgia lies in all of this obviously plays a role. If it's Georgia at 12-1, and or um, yeah, I guess it would be 12-1. and If it's uh, Notre Dame at 11-1, and I I think that certainly – have to be taken into consideration, um, but it, a lot of it just depends on who's coming from where. Um, a lot of people writing off the Pac-12 um, after the last couple of weeks with USC losing, with Washington losing. So if you're trying to squeeze five spots into four, that's usually going to leave some guys out, but that might not necessarily be the case this year. It just You have to kind of see how it all plays out. Notre Dame will have the resume to be seriously in contention if they have 11 wins. But it's, it's, I think mostly it's going to depend on Georgia and who else is really in that conversation. Georgia is sitting at number three uh, in the country, and we'll, we'll stay in the SEC here for a moment. Uh, with Florida coming up this week with the Bulldogs, a lot of talk about the SEC this year has been how they kind of have lost a step a little bit. It's Alabama and then everybody else. They call it a very top-heavy conference. With the way Georgia has played this year, how big is the gap between Alabama and then Georgia and then the rest of the SEC? Are the Crimson Tide really that much better than everybody else? The gap between Alabama and Georgia right now, as far as I'm concerned, is almost non-existent. Uh, Both of those teams have been head and shoulders better than everyone that they've played, maybe with the exception of Georgia playing Notre Dame. But they were breaking in uh, Jake Fromm at the time. that's, That's a little bit of you know, you have to kind of take that into consideration. So they've been otherwise a very dominant football team. And I think they're right there with Alabama. I think if they were to play tomorrow, it would be a coin flip game. Um, So for Alabama, for being not only number one, but a unanimous number one team in the AP poll, it's almost like they've, I don't want to say flown under the radar, but it's almost like they haven't been given the full attention of everyone because they've just gone out week after week and just taken care of the business. Jalen Hurts just continues to be very, very good, racking up yards, racking up touchdowns. So it's like, okay, it's another week. Alabama goes out, takes care of business. End of story. So there really hasn't been enough drama to know really what to make of this Alabama team yet. That's going to change here in the month of November. They still have to play LSU, who at least, historically has a, has a pretty good matchup for them, uh, hat on hat. I think they still have to play um, Auburn. They still, I think they still have to play Mississippi State. So t- their toughest conference games are still ahead. And I, I think that's where we're going to get a much better feel for just how good Alabama is and how much maybe better they are than the rest of their division. Um, I would say that the gap is, is pretty sizable between them and, and everyone else in the West. Um, I would assume that they go undefeated into the SEC championship game. But I, right now they're on this crash course with Georgia. And both of those teams, I, I think, in their respective divisions are, are head and shoulders above everybody else. Kind of strange to think of Alabama, a team, as you mentioned, unanimous preseason number one as uh, under the radar. But, but at the same time, Ben, I feel as though in this top five, the way it sits right now, four of those teams are kind of under the radar. You can throw Georgia out if you'd like to because it's a freshman doing this. But Alabama, TCU, and, and then Wisconsin kind of flying under the radar a bit. With regards to the Horn Frogs and the Badgers, uh, when you look at those two teams – 
How much do you feel as though those are being two squads are being overlooked? And then if they continue on their crash courses in their respective conferences, that those two teams could be involved in the playoff? Well, TCU is a really well-coached football team. And Gary Patterson has, if you go back and you look at his record historically, they're very good in bounce-back years. So last season, they went 6-7. They lost their bowl game, so that, that put them technically under 500. So if you want to call that a losing season, technically that's what it was. Patterson has been very good in those rebound years. Um, that is part of what makes him one of the great coaches in, in all of college football, at least of the, the non-blue blood variety. So they're, they're well coached. They've, I don't want to say they've taken the ball out of Kenny Hill's hands, but they've made the ground game a bigger priority in that offense. And they do it in a variety of ways. They use Hill. Uh, they have Anderson that they that they've used. They uh, do some wildcat looks. They they get the ball into some different guys' hands, and they, they give you a variety of looks. And that's really been the bread and butter of that offense. It's it's not been the Travon Boykin throw it around a bunch to, to Josh Doxson and, and, you know, spread the ball out through the air. It's, it's been a lot more of a ground game-centric type of offense uh, with Sonny Kundu running it this time. Um, defense, they, uh, obviously they're – they do two things really well. They have a very good D-line that finishes in the backfield, and then they have defensive backs who are very good at, at disruption on balls down the field. So if you actually look at Oklahoma State's overtime win over Texas, which was a very close win for them, Texas defensively used the, the same blueprint that TC used to beat Oklahoma State earlier in the year. No matter what happens with Oklahoma State going forward, Defenses in the Big 12 are going to utilize what TCU did, which is you drop eight guys into coverage, probably seven to eight guys into coverage almost every single time. And if you can finish with your defensive line, then you're going to have a really great shot to at least limit what Oklahoma State does. So for that conference that prides itself on big offenses and passing the ball around, TCU provides the perfect defensive plan to have some success. You're not going to limit Big 12 offenses to 10 points a game, 250 yards of offense, but you are going to put them in situations where your stop rate's going to go up. So overall, I like TCU just as a very well-rounded team. Wisconsin, I think, is a little bit more one-sided. Their defense is spectacular. They have four uh, pick sixes this year. I think that is tied for first in the country with Duke. They can rely on their defense probably all the way to the Big Ten championship game. Once they get there, I think they're going to run into some problems. Um, Jonathan Taylor touchdown is a really good freshman running back for them. He's the next in that lineage of great running backs that they have. They're a little bit turnover prone on offense, and I don't know that I would trust Alex Hornibrook to really go out and win a game for me. I mean, he's good for what they want to do. I don't know that you want to ask him to go above and beyond that. So they're good for that Big Ten West division, but – are they a top five team to me? Maybe if you're just counting on defense, yeah. But I would just put them as a – like they're going to go out and win 10 or 11 games this year and just be really good because that defense is is outstanding. I think up until a couple of games ago, they hadn't allowed a, a point in the second half of this season. So uh, they're very good. I, I just think once they get to the Big Ten title game, if that's what ends up happening – they're probably going to play Ohio State or Penn State, and those two teams have way too much explosiveness on offense for Wisconsin to try to keep up. You mentioned them at number two, the Penn State and Indy Lions, going into the horseshoe this week against the six-ranked Buckeyes. What's the biggest key for both of these teams, and then who do you ultimately see coming out of this weekend in the driver's seat headed for the Big Ten Championship? It's a really tough game because Penn State's the higher-ranked team. Ohio State came out as nearly a touchdown favorite from Vegas on Sunday, and that speaks volumes about Urban Meyer and how good he is at home, how good he is off of bye week. He's 21-1 and one off of a bye week, and that one loss came when he was at Bowling Green. So he's, he's been very good when he has extra time to prepare. The key for Penn State is going to be getting out to a fast start, and they're 90-0 and 0 in first quarters this year. They, they have 90 points, and they've shut everyone out in the first quarter. So their defense, obviously, is a big part of that. But the reason why they're able to get out to so many fast starts is because they are very creative with the way that they use Saquon Barkley. So he is the most complete running back in college football. And when you have that type of talent, you don't just say, we're going to 
just run the dive with him. We're going to just, or we're going to zone block and just what you try to find different ways to get him the ball. They line him out. He's a, tri- he's a very good receiver. He's a good route runner. Um, so they get him, a, I think he has 15 first quarter receptions. And I know all these numbers guys, I just did like a preview on the game. Otherwise I, I wouldn't know, but he has 15 first quarter receptions this year. And he has 32 receptions total on the season. So almost half of his receptions, come in the first quarter alone. So when everyone just thinks, okay, we're going to load up the box on, on Penn State and try to contain Saquon, they'll just split him out and they'll just do different things with him, and that puts him on linebackers. That puts him on defensive backs. That puts him on guys who maybe are too small to cover him or not fast enough to cover him, and then it just creates mismatches. So they need to be able to continue to do that because – the the dirty little secret about Penn State's offense over the past few weeks is that when you look at Saquon Barkley's raw numbers, they still look pretty good, right? He still, I think he had like 100 yards against Michigan or something like that. But almost 70 of them came on like the first his first run of the game. Other than that, Michigan did a pretty good job king on him. Northwestern did a pretty good job king on him. Uh, I even want to say Indiana did a pretty good job king on him. So. The rushing staff alone, I think Ohio State is going to be able to handle. It's all the other different ways that they like to move them around that Ohio State needs to account for defensively. I think they can do it, but it's going to be a challenge. That's where the extra week really helps them. Then, conversely, for the Buckeyes, if they want to win, I think that passing offense, it looks like it's statistically been improved. They've also played a bunch of nobodies. I mean, no disrespect to Army and Maryland and Rutgers, but – They've been able to do it against teams that they're going to blast either way. So for K.J. Hill and for Paris Campbell, those have really been their, their one and two guys for catching the ball. If that passing game really is as advertised, if J.C. Bird, who's been like the most productive passer over the past month, if all of that is, is as good as it looks, then that's where you need to show up and do it because Penn State also has a very good defense. So for Ohio State, it's you go back to the Oklahoma game, got exposed. They were really exposed in week one against Indiana. What's that improvement been like over the past six weeks? Because that's going to determine whether you have the firepower to, to go up against Penn State and get a win. He's Ben Kerchival, college football writer for CBSSports.com. Find him on Twitter, at Ben Kerchival. Catch his latest uh, college football picks, predictions, upset picks as well. Ben, we appreciate the time. Thanks so much, and uh, enjoy the football this weekend. Thanks, man. You too. It's Ben Kirchvold, college football writer, CBSSports.com, joining us here on Press Row. And uh, listen, I mean, we I know he thinks it's all about the landscape, and we talked about it right before we spoke with him, but uh, I'll bring it up again. I think that a one-loss Notre Dame team, depending on how things play out, how are they not in the college football playoff? But uh, the last thing we touched on, obviously this weekend, the biggest matchup probably in ranked opponents other than Notre Dame, North Carolina State, is Penn State and, uh, and Ohio State. And, and Saquon Barkley, and is, you guys know this and you've listened to the show for a while now, I have yet to buy into the Saquon Barkley hype. Um, I understand he's a triple threat. I understand he can do it receiving, um, running the football, and, and kick returning. But for me, if you're a running back, you can't be as inconsistent as he is actually running the football. He has a great game against Iowa, 56 yards against Indiana. He has a really great game against Michigan. We'll see what he does this week against Ohio State uh, and a much better defense. Um, to me, I, I still think the Heisman front runner, and, and I've said it's been Baker Mayfield or Mason Rudolph, but after watching Stanford last night, and even though he didn't play, how is Bryce Love not the Heisman front runner? To, to me, the Heisman is the best player, the MVP of college football. And when you watch Stanford last night on the road against Oregon State, a team that just two weeks ago had their coach walk out on them and were three touchdown underdogs at home to Stanford, and without Bryce Love, who had an ankle injury, the Cardinal looked embarrassing. Their offense was atrocious last night. Uh, Their quarterback, Keller Christ, looked like he had no idea what he was doing until the final 45 seconds. And even then, he had two passes that were just brutal, and and it made you wonder what he was going, what he was doing, why he was throwing there. But Stanford comes away surviving with a 15-14 win 
at Oregon State without Bryce Love. And, and you know, we, we joked about it when Peyton Manning was hurt. We joke about it now with Andrew Luck hurt uh, and the Indianapolis Colts. But when, when guys that talented are hurt, it kind of proves just how valuable they are. How is it, in my mind, that Bryce Love isn't the Heisman frontrunner with just how valuable he is, how important he is to that Stanford offense? I, I don't, I mean, we'll see this weekend and, and, and maybe, you know, getting a chance to, to fully watch Saquon Barkley on a national stage for the second or third time this year against a real defense in Ohio State. Maybe, maybe he'll prove me wrong, but I, I'm just, I haven't been that impressed with him from a running back standpoint. He's a great triple threat. He really is. But in my mind, kick returners aren't Heisman Trophy winners. They're not. To me, it, it, it's, it's Baker Mayfield, Bryce Love, Mason Rudolph. Will Greer maybe at West Virginia? He's putting up monster numbers, I know, but uh, you know we'll, we'll see what happens. West Virginia TCU in a Big Twelve championship game could be a lot of fun, but we'll we'll see if that even happens. All, all I know is that I have yet to buy into Saquon Barkley, and last night's Stanford game proved to me that Bryce Love is that much better, that much more important. And I, it may be sour grapes just because I haven't seen. Penn State really play without Barkley. All I know is is that last night's game proved to me just how valuable Bryce Love is and how much I think Bryce Love is the Heisman front runner right now. I'm not saying it's it's far and away. I'm saying it's it's much closer, but you know, we'll see. Been a fun show this week. Happy to have you guys here as a part of it. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, review, share us. We're on Apple Podcasts. Spreaker.com, Stitcher.com, Google Play, iHeartRadio. If you have Amazon Alexa, you can also listen to us there. Ask Alexa to check out Press Row, and you will find us. Uh, you can also find us on social media, Instagram and Twitter handle at PressRowPHM. Email us, PressRowPHM at gmail.com. And find us on Facebook, PressRowPodcast-PublicHouseMedia. Big thanks to Ben Kirchival of CBSSports.com and Matt Yoloff of MLB Network for joining us here this week. Next week, really excited Barrett Saley of CBS Sports is going to join us to recap this week in college football and maybe convince me a little bit more about Saquon Barkley as the Heisman front runner. And then Matt Creel of MingMag.com, big UFC fight coming up next Saturday, uh, November 4th. He will join us to break down all of that as well. Until then, I thank you guys so much for being a part of this show. I'm Christian Imel, and I will see you on Press Row.